Thank you for tuning in to the Queer Stories of Q's podcast. Hello, my name is Sebastian Callahan and I'm a junior at Syracuse University and as a research assistant for the LGBTQ Center, we're working here to establish our first queer oral history archive. A few of our goals for this project include amplifying marginalized voices that are often wrongfully spoken for or over. I'm pleased to be here with you and I would like to extend all my gratitude to you for taking the time out of your schedule to participate in this interview. Please know that you may revoke your consent at any time or at any point during or after this interview if you're feeling uncomfortable or would like to take a break. Um, just let me know. And All your, right. your safety is and well-being is of our utmost priority, and we definitely want to make that clear. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with us, and we greatly appreciate it. And I guess My pleasure. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I found your name in the uh, when looking through the archives originally, <laughs> and then I think yesterday I actually found someone interviewing you. I think is what I found actually in one of the archives. I think it was called Coffee Talk or something like that. Probably, um, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was interesting. Uh, it was more questions focused on you know parents and such, and you know. Uh -huh. and, it was definitely, um, yeah, but I have some more questions here, but I guess we'll just do this as a conversation most of the time, but I have some questions sure. laid out. So Great, what, I'm ready. Yeah. So what's your name and what are your pronouns, if you'd like to share them? Uh, my name is Patty Hayes, P-A-T-T-Y-H-A-Y-E-S, and my pronouns are she, her. Okay. And when and where were you born? Um, I was born in Albany, New York, and I was born in 1972. Okay. And when did you start to come to terms with your queerness or queer identity? And do you feel comfortable sharing the ways you identify? Sure. Um, I identify as a butch dyke. Um, and well, I should say I mostly identify as a butch dyke. There are certain contexts in which that self-identification um, makes people uneasy in a way that doesn't help me get to whatever goals I'm trying to achieve, in which case I'll just, I'll identify as a lesbian until the point where I can be like, you know, lesbians and identifier, but this is a little more... Uh, socially and politically accurate and we we can have a bit more of a nuanced conversation especially a lot of straight people are like I thought I couldn't say that word um, so identify as a butch dyke when did I start to recognize my queerness well I don't think I would have identified it as queerness back then but I was 150,000 percent a tomboy um, so I think the first, the first inklings I had and anyone had were that, you know, Patty just dresses in boys clothes and plays with all boys 
and plays all the boy games and doesn't hang out with girls. And um, <clears throat> so I think it was more of like a, a gendered presentation. And then as um, middle school hit and my, you know, we were all hitting puberty and the girls in my grade were starting to like make googly eyes at the boys um, and the boys are still like, you know, being boys and kind of goofballs because <laughs> they're coming along a little later. Um, I definitely felt out of place. Um, and I definitely started recognizing that um, I didn't get what the other girls were talking about in terms of making googly eyes at the, at the boys. So, um, and I didn't have any attraction to them. It took, you know, and then crushes came up in high school, but it probably took me until leaving for college that I, w I had the breathing room. I was raised in a very religious family. Um, and so it, it took me going off to college and it was in college that I was able to like breathe into to my sexuality and my identities. Um, and it stayed, it stayed fairly consistent over the years. Um, there was a period of time actually when I worked at Syracuse University where I was like, uh, this notion of, you know, bi gender doesn't quite work, but um, I've, I've come to really embrace butchness as an identity, not in a trans sense, but in a like uh, transgressing gender norms sense, not in a dysphoric sense. So that was a long answer. I hope that made sense. No, please, <laughs> please give me long answers always. We've got, you know, as long as, yeah, I love to hear long answers. And please remember, just do not, um, don't worry about, um, you know, like, putting on a filter or anything, especially about okay, the cool. way you identify. Like, I'm here, and I'll support you no yeah. matter what you say. And, yes, I'm here to also. But, yeah, that's great. Going back to that about the butchness, that's that's really interesting because I'm about to interview uh, Minnie Bruce Pratt, and her wife oh, yeah. uh, wrote, um, I think it's called Stone Cold Butch or something. something oh, uh, uh, that was Minnie, Minnie Bruce Pratt. Pratt's wife, uh, partner, Leslie, Leslie Feinberg, yeah. who, who passed away a number of years ago, wrote Stone Butch Blues. Oh, Stone Butch Blues, sorry. Yeah. Stone Butch Blues, yeah. Uh, and when I was working for <clears throat> Syracuse University, we brought Leslie and Minnie Bruce Pratt in. And I think it was after I left SU that Minnie Bruce Pratt came on on faculty, but yeah. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, it's a small world. And yeah, I mean, yeah, mm -hmm. I'm really interested to learn more. So we can keep moving on to um, what's it like? Sure. Yeah, going back to what it was like growing up as a member of the LGBT community within your family and friends. What was it? Uh, what was it like, especially between your relationships? Yeah, well, um, you know, in the 70s and 80s, it was, you know, it was quite different. Um, and I was going to high school in the eighties and I don't, you know, I don't recollect anyone being out as a student. Um, I don't even remember anyone really being out, out as a teacher, although, you know, there was a teacher or two where there were 
you know, there are whispers and certainly um, lots of homophobic name calling. And, you know, those were the, honestly, the same slurs now were, <laughs> were back then. Um, and um, when I was in, you know, high school is when the HIV AIDS crisis first started coming on the scene and, and it was when I, I entered um, college in 1990 and um, and that's when I really first started meeting my first um, acquaintances and friends who were HIV positive and um, had identified as having AIDS. Well, didn't, I mean, they had AIDS and um, and so I feel like when I was, you know, 18 and moving off to college and starting to grapple with my own sexuality, um, it was sort of this confluence of times where there, my access to LGBTQ adults was really very limited, um, you know, too young to get into the bars um, although that didn't stop us from getting in. So like, you know, my access to community was sneaking into bars. Um, and, you know, there were some out faculty and there were some non-traditionally aged students, like, you know, older students who were um, coming back to do their undergraduate degrees. And so my introduction into the community was, you know, a handful of, besides my peers, you know, were a handful of people who identified as lesbian feminists and these kind of relentless gay AIDS activists. Um, and, you know, many of whom have passed now. Um, and so, it's interesting. Um, sorry. No, please. I, I'm, I'm really feeling for you right now. It's, it's definitely, yeah, it's, it's a really heavy topic to discuss. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I, it's, it's interesting cause I was just at, I just went to a Northern Ontario, tiny small town pride and there was like a million billion little queerlings and it was so fantastic. Um, and I realized that I, I am now the age I'm fit. I just turned 50. I am like the age of the adults that I didn't have when I was their age. Like when I was their age, they're like, everyone was dying or just closeted. Right. And it really hit me this summer. I was like, oh shit, I'm, I'm the adult. I'm the adult I needed when I was their age. And that is kind of wild that in one generation, you know, one or two generations, how how things have turned around. Because these the little these amazing little queerlings that were running around with the plethora of different identity flags <laughs> um draped around their necks. Like they've never not known they've always known gay straight alliances in their schools. Um, I'm now living in Canada. These kids, these young queerlings have always known having their rights <clears throat> enshrined 
in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada. These little ones have always known uh, marriage equality. The little ones, you know, they hear HIV AIDS, but to them it's like a chronic illness that you manage like diabetes. Um, and first of all, I felt old and I felt it in my knees. No, um, but, it, you know, so for me, when I think back to 1990 and the early 90s and, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it feels like a really long time ago. And then I turn on CNN and I look at Florida and I look at Texas and I'm like, wow, everything old is new again. Um, and how... <clears throat> There's a generation of gay men that are gone, but there's definitely a lot of us who were still around back then. And the degree to which I now feel I have a responsibility to maybe teach some of the activist skills we learned when it literally was march or die. That was, I don't know. I don't know if I answered your question, but no, it was... Oh, thank you so much. You know, that's, it, that's it, things felt really urgent, fun, super fun. Like, um, and I feel also there was a, like a real sense of community because we, those of us that were out, it was small and um, we weren't on TV and we weren't, there. there just wasn't as much. So you had to... You know, if you lived in a smaller city, there was the gay bar and that's where everyone went. Um, and so I feel like there was definitely much more of a sense of community um, as well. So, yeah, I'll just sort of pause there. No, well, thank you so much, because, you know, my years, uh, that's why I'm interviewing you is because my years are from 2001 to 2006. So especially what I wanted to draw on was actually like coming out of AIDS, like, you know, coming out of the serious epidemic that was happening going into the 2000s and still it, it still remains an epidemic in some places yep. not luckily not in america as bad but um you know it's um it's really sad and it is especially sad the you know the action that was taken by the government which was you know next to nil and especially mm -hmm. how much had to be done for that to be even recognized as just, you know, not just, you know, like how the New York Times even put it as a gay disease. And it's, yeah. it's crazy. I was just speaking about the rhetoric with Margaret Himley. And yeah, that's she had a whole class on it, actually. And um, yeah, I, I wish I could take that class. But too bad they're not offering it anymore. So yeah, but yeah, well, thank you so much for, you know, divulging into that. Because, you know, that's, that's like, please tell me as much as you feel comfortable saying and you know I, I would love to hear everything you have to say and I'm sure everyone listening to this would love to hear everything you have to say so I'll move on to um, tell me about your role in Syracuse or what your role was and what that meant to you at the time sure um, I had to actually go back and look I was like what years was I there <laughs> um, so <clears throat> I um, came to Syracuse University. I was doing my master of social work um, and I was taking a slightly slow route because I, I had already been working in the field. <clears throat> so um, prior to coming to Syracuse University for my master of social work, 
I was working for, back then it was called the Gay Alliance of the Genesee Valley, GHGV. I think now it's just called the Alliance. Um, and it's one of the older uh, LGBTQ community centers in the country. And um, I had been working for a number of years as their youth program coordinator. In fact, I was the GAGV had had a youth group that had been running for quite a long time and they got some funding from New York State. New York State opened up a big pot of money for non-HIV related LGBTQ health programming. And so GAGV applied and um, got a big, big grant for um, that they said they wanted to do have a paid youth coordinator. And I had been volunteering with the GAGV, um, like they had adult volunteers who would, we would take turns once or twice a month um, facilitating the drop-in youth group, youth group drop-in. And so I got the chance to be hired. And so I had built up that position um, at the Gay Alliance, where when I started there, we were getting two or three kids a week for the weekly drop-in. And by the time I left, we were getting 30, 40 or more kids a week for drop-in. We had a case management program. I was doing counseling with the kids. Wow. I was running multiple groups a week. Um, I was doing lots of training with high schools. Um, I had so many young people that I had to, I had to start, um, I had a group for like 18 and under and then a group for like 17 and up because it was there was there was nothing there was nothing there was nothing there was no GSAs there were GSAs by the time I left but there was there was none of that right and so the LGBT youth group and the gay alliance that that was it um so I was getting young people as young as 12 and as like old as 24 25 I'm like geez I can't have a 25 and a 12 year old in the same group um and <clears throat> Through lots of twists and turns, I, I left the Gay Alliance um, and I had already started my MSW part time because I was working. I was working at the Gay Alliance full time and I was also working as a chaplain for an LGBT uh, faith community. That was my side hustle. Wow. Not your average <laughs> church lady because um, I have a master's of divinity degree oh, as well wow. That's very interesting. and um so i interviewed for the graduate assistant position and i started in august of two, i looked 2003 i don't know if i was the first graduate assistant um but i think i was close to one of the first and <clears throat> we the resource center had just moved was being housed somewhere else on campus and had just moved to the house on i think it's ostrom avenue i think you might be right i think i think yeah. i've heard that it used to be there yeah yeah um and adria janig was my direct supervisor and was an amazing leader um and a really wonderful person to work with and work for um 
And it was such an exciting, it was such a really exciting time because the LGBT Resource Center was a fairly new, a fairly new entity on campus. Um, and, you know, there were queer things going on in Syracuse, but it, it was, again, high schools, there was a lot of fights over gay-straight alliances. Um, there was no real community center. Um, the, you know, one of the other, the only other real major partner we had was um, the HIV AIDS org. So um, in some ways back then, and Adrian and I talked about this a lot, in some ways back then, the LGBT student center, resource center at SU in some ways was like the community hub for Syracuse um, because we were able to bring in amazing speakers, amazing artists, authors, entertainers, comedians. Um, we were able to do fantastic programming because of like the support and especially the financial backing from within Syracuse University that really benefited um, all of Syracuse, right? Because if we're bringing in a comedian like Suzanne Westenhofer, or we're bringing in Keith Boykin, or um, Kate Clinton, or you know, whoever we're bringing in, we're not just right. We're not just. We didn't just limit that audience. Um, so it it was kind of an exciting time um to to be a part of the center and i think adria and i i don't want to speak for adria so i'll just speak for me <laughs> i hope you get to interview adria i'm trying i'm trying uh, she hasn't okay responded good yet, but yeah okay um you know i think we both knew that and so then i was able to do things that really did serve the wider community. Like we recognized there was no place for trans youth. There had been like out of the, um, what's the AIDS, what's the HIV AIDS org in Syracuse? I'm blanking right now. ACT UP or something or ACT? I was just told it by Margaret. Um, I can't Yeah. It's, it's ACT. I'm blanking on it, but um, the person who was running the LGBT youth group there, Mary Duty, um, she was running their little youth group like on top of the bajillion, kajillion other things she was responsible for. And she and I had worked um, on projects together when I worked for the Gay Alliance of the Genesee Valley in Rochester. So I went to Mary and I was like, Mary, we need like we need a play, we need a group specific for trans youth and students, not just at SU. And she's like, yeah, I know what you mean. And so, you know, with Adria's blessing, I went, I went as part of my, my job duties at SU and um, Mary recruited someone within their org um, and then, so basically SU via me and the HIV AIDS org, we, we were able to start up the first trans youth support group 
um, in Syracuse. And so, you know, I think it was really important, not only for campus, but I feel like it was very important um, for the wider community, the work that Adria started um, and the backing and the blessing that we got from SU to do this. So. Well, thank you so much for, you know, starting this and really helping to start the LGBTQ Center now because it's really grown too, you know, it's, it's, that's so good. It's great to see. And yeah, I can definitely see like that. It's definitely (laughs) gone through a lot going from a house and now we have a great little, you know, finally a room in shine in a part of the multicultural center. And it's, it's really starting to flourish. And this, this, you know, oral history is hopefully the first step and, yeah, thank you so much for also taking the time to share all this. And I lo- yeah, I love to hear about it. It's, it's fantastic to hear about because, you know, people like you really are the cornerstones of, you know, why, you know, we're progressing this future. And Team sport. <laughs> <laughs> and okay, so let's move on to how have you made in, what would you say, uh, you've made an impact on in this turbulent time for the LGBT community for social justice. Like what have you done or, you know, I'm sure you've done so much and just from what I've heard so far, you've already done so much, but are there any other things you'd like to share about, you know, how you've impacted the LGBT community and what you're proud of and your accomplishments? Um, I think for me, it's been my 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 consistent work with um, youth. You know, um, it's where I started my career, and it's still where my career is uh, in many ways. You know, like um, my mom and my dad both worked, you know, as teachers and administrators, and. Um, my mom worked in Hell's Kitchen in New York City, and my dad built one of, he built the first school for black South African students in the 1950s in South Africa when actually educating black South African students beyond eighth grade was illegal, and he built an illegal school there. Wow. So I, I come from a long history of, um, of people who look to working with young people and believing that young people like know what they're doing. And, and um, my job is to sometimes be, you know, the cheerleader, sometimes to be the wrecking ball or the snowplow in front of them. Um, so for me, you know, the, that's always been where it's at and you know building really getting to build the the youth program out at the gay alliance and then um taking a lot of the very same steps and skills to build that i used to build that program getting to then work with adria and and in those early years of the the resource center and for me the you know, the proof is in the pudding in that every so often I will 
on some social media on the book of faces or whatever, <laughs> like out of nowhere, I will get this message from somebody who's now in their thirties. And they're like, do you remember me? I was like 14 when I met you and I came to the gay youth group and now I've gone to school and I've done this and I've done that. And like, they're alive. Alive was not like a guarantee, especially, you know, back in the nineties, like alive was not a guarantee. I mean, it's not a guarantee now. Um, and so to hear that the center is still thriving and to see people go on and have careers and to see them be activists of their own right, you know? Um, and like, even just to reflect, I talked about just a couple weeks ago, going up to that little teeny tiny small town pride. Cause I love a good small town pride. And there was like a, your typical like street preacher who is like, you know, spewing what they spew. And all the little queerlings were like, oh, no, what do we do? And they were like wringing their hands because, again, they've never they've they've known things that I didn't know when I was their age. Like they, they've known rights and groups and things. And so uh, my my best friend and I were there and we're like, OK, kids, come here. And so we showed them like we got them chanting and I got some pride flags and we used the pride flags to visually block the person in so people couldn't see or hear the street preacher and you know then the action the quick street action finished and about two hours later a little a little one and they're not little I know they're like 16 but in my head they're <laughs> my little ones and you know a little one comes running up to me he's like are you are you the people that started the chanting and you got us with the flags and, and I was like yeah and he's like I need to give you a hug that was the best thing ever and I didn't know we could do that and and it was like, right, that's, that's it. That's it. That's what my, that's what my purpose is. That's super fantastic. That That's literally incredible to hear that, you know, you know, you do that for, you know, people younger than I am and people more in need of it, you know, especially they're the most in need of it is the young ones. And yeah, as you say, the queerlings and, you know, it's, it's I've been I've been doing this a long time and and I never they're they're why I get up in the morning. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. So, if you want to move on, we can move on to how. Sure. If well, we can kind of move back actually, and we can go back into if you want to talk a little bit more about how HIV or AIDS affected you or you know any other <clears throat> esoteric world happenings that affected the lgbt community affected you yeah um yeah i think i talked a little bit about you know sort of the impact of hiv aids and um the in some ways jumping into that that world and that activism was, you know, that was my, in, that was my introduction in some ways to the community. Um, you know, I remember in, it was in 90, 94, 1994, 95, something around there. I was, I think I was 22 years old and I'm, I, I finished my undergraduate degree and I moved to San Francisco. Um, and that, was something because, you know, every week brought a fresh batch of obituaries 
And when I was living there, I was working during the day. I was working at Langley Porter Psychiatric as a music therapy intern. And then I didn't, I moved to the city. I didn't know anybody. I moved there by myself. I didn't know anybody. So I, I do what a lot of people do. I'm like, well, let me meet people by volunteering. And I volunteered for the Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt. I don't know if you're familiar with the AIDS quilt. No, I'm not familiar. So if you'd like to Okay, Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt. And um, so it's it, it was a project started um, where people would make memorials, memorial squares and they were sewn into like 10 by 10 quilts. And each quilt panel is three by six, which is the size of a grave plot and um so they had a a visitor center on the corner of market and castro which is like the that's the start of the big gay area especially back in the 90s right yeah the great and, gay mecca is what marlon Riggs yeah called it. <laughs> yeah so i was right there so i'd volunteer at the names project aids memorial quilt and um like the people i met um and their stories and their bravery and the sense of community and urgency and that the quilt wasn't just about remembering the dead it was about fighting like hell for the living and using the quilt to educate um as well as remember and, you know, we had the visitor center part and then we had like sewing machines and fabric and stuff in the back. And I remember we had a, we called them the grannies. And it was just a team of older women, a lot of whose sons had died from HIV AIDS. And, you know, people would come in and they would work on their own panels. They knew they were dying. And they would come in, they'd start working on their own panels and then you wouldn't see them for a while and you wouldn't see them for a while. And then you'd open up the newspaper and there would be their obituary. So you would go find their panel and give it to the grannies and the grannies would finish people's panels. And, you know, it was intense, um, but necessary and important. And I don't know if like, Maybe people have a sense of it now with COVID because I know a lot of folks my age and older, we were like, oh, we've been here. We've done this. This is familiar. And I lost four people to COVID. Um, I'm so sorry about that. Yeah, thank you. So I'm like, this is like same thing all over again, you know. So in some ways, I was just like, oh, the straight muggles, they don't. So they don't know they don't know how to do this shit. We know how to do this shit. <laughs> so um yeah, it was it was uh intense but important and I don't think you know what you're like you just do it when you have to do it and then it's later on that you're like, Whoa, what was that? Um, you know, so that was one sort of defining thing was like living in San Francisco in the early nineties as like a, you know, 22, 23, 24 year old. Um, and I think for me, the other big defining thing was 
um, in the early days of my paid employment as an LGBT youth worker um, was the amount of activism that we put into making kids safer in school. Um, you know, in New York State at that time, year after year after year, um, some legislators would raise, they want to amend the anti-bullying bill to include sexual orientation. We weren't even talking gender identity back then. <laughs> like, I always joke around, I'm like, back in my day, we had gay lists, we did bisexual. Um, <laughs> but, but like every year, like this would come up and every year it'd get defeated and they're like, we don't need to add sexual orientation, it's fine. And of course it was never fine. And, um, you know, some of the highlights for me around that activism were, I don't, I think it still exists, I don't know. Empire State Pride Agenda, every year they would have a lobby day. <clears throat> and I would work with the um, Rochester rep. And we would rent a we rent a full size coach bus. And I would I'm not kidding you. <clears throat> I would bring 40, 40 kids under the age of like 18, 19. Me one other adult volunteer and the bus driver and 40 kids. This is how you know when you're younger. I don't know if I could do this now. And and we would drive from Rochester to Albany on this damn bus. And when we got there, myself, Mary Duty from Syracuse, there was a youth group in Buffalo, a youth group in Albany, a youth group in Jamestown, uh, Jamestown New York, and a couple of youth groups from New York City and Long Island would come up and we'd put all the kids together in, in Albany and we would train them to how to lobby legislators. And we would work with the kids ahead of time for them to hone their stories, um, to be able to talk. You know, when you, when you go to Albany, you're like trying to catch legislators on elevators. You were booking them appointments, but legislators that they don't have all day. You got to tell your story and like lickety split because they don't they don't have all the attention span in the world. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and um, and it was very gratifying because, you know, I'd see the kids dress up and they would be practicing their speeches with each other. And um, we would just like let them you know, I'd give them the list of here's your appointments and I would help them sometimes get there. And it was it was very gratifying to think that I'm training them for to like advocate not just for today, but literally the rest of their lives. Like we're giving you a hardcore skill that you as a queer kid are going to need when you're a queer adult. Like this is how you do it. And, you know, a couple years of doing this and we actually got them finally to to add sexual orientation, then eventually gender identity. But for me, like my early days of youth work, it was a lot of schools didn't give a shit. They still don't, but like they gave even less of a shit then. I remember I went into one school where I had, it was um, a suburban school in Rochester, very big jock school. And I had three three boys, teenage boys, all of whom had dropped out in short order of each other because of um, homophobic harassment. 
And one of the kids just before he dropped out, he had um, they had suspended my kid because this kid had been beaten up, bullied, beaten up, bullied, beaten up, bullied, shoved into lockers. School did nothing. School did nothing. And then the one time, the one time my kid pushed another kid back, they suspended my kid and not the bullies that have been doing this all year. And um, that's atrocious. The, yeah. And the kid's mom called me up and was like, I need your help. This mother was amazing. Amazing. I worked with amazing parents. So this mom's like, I need, it's going to be me and the vice principal and the principal and her and the child, the kid was in um, some special ed classes and they're going to have this and that, and they're going to try and blame it on my kid. And it's going to be me and all them. And I need you. And I remember like, <laughs> I walked into this meeting and the vice principal's like, and who's this? And I'm just, I introduced myself. I'm like, I'm the program, you know, youth program coordinator at the Gay Alliance of the Genesee Valley. And I, I remember, I remember this. I slid my business card across the table. <laughs> and I just said, I'm here to support and represent the family. And I said, hey, just before we get started, I wanted to let you know some interesting news. That two weeks ago out of Saratoga County, um, a young gay man who was wrongfully suspended and kept getting repeatedly bullied in school just won a $6 million lawsuit against the school district. This young man sitting next to me here is like the third kid from your school in the last two weeks. I'm thinking a $12 million class action lawsuit sounds good to me. What do you think? And he went like 17 shades of pale. That was probably the one of the most gratifying professional moments I've ever had. That is bad. Um, <laughs> was to like, and I was like, I don't know what I was, 26, 27. And I just threatened a $12 million lawsuit across the table from all of these district muckety mucks. Oh my God, they were falling all over themselves to kiss my ass. And I was like, not buying it, sweetheart. <laughs> Yeah, it's great to hear that you took action like that too. Like that that's amazing to hear and I'm sure that kid will always remember you and his mom. Like it's fantastic. Yeah, that kid found me on Facebook and is doing real good. Great, great. And that's yeah. what I see from the LGBTQ plus community coming out of Syracuse, you know. That's why I chose you to interview and so many others because your names, like I found them and then I searched them up and it seemed like you were still doing great things. And I definitely wanted to speak more and hear more about it. And it's great to hear that you have Facebook connections with these people that you spoke to probably 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So I guess we'll move on to, um, let's see about how have you dealt with intersectional oppression against you for your race or gender or sexual orientation or anything else, etc. Yeah. Um, well, um, in terms of intersectionality, the truth is, is in many arenas, perhaps except for like gender and sexuality, I, um, in many other arenas, am the one considered in the more advantageous positions, right? So I am white. Um, but I have also, I hope in my career, especially given my dad's legacy, <laughs> um, have recognized that, um, LGBTQ plus, um, uh, people of color face, um, a different and unique 
set of experiences, joys and challenges. Um, and in my gay alliance days, I was actually able to work with the Men of Color Health Awareness Project um, to establish some LGBTQ groups for youth of color. Um, and I and I hope that um, I would never call myself an ally. I don't think as a white person, I get to call myself an ally. I think I try to behave um, and act with integrity, um, dignity and authenticity and humility, cultural humility in a way that reflects what I think an ally should be, but I don't believe it's my place to call myself that. Um, yeah, that's, that's great to hear. However you identify yourself, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think, I think, um, identifying as a woman, there have certainly been some spaces where I've had to fight sexism, um, particularly, you know, particularly in spaces where, um, that are more dominated by, well, white gay men, frankly. Um, so that's, I'm not a stranger to that, but it's probably already a little evident that I don't, I don't intimidate easily. <laughs> so I'm, um, I can be, I can, I can, uh, I can, I can assert and flex when, when I need, <laughs> I can also, part of it's also knowing when to, to be um, diplomatic and strategic. I'm a big fan of asking myself, Patty, do you want to be right or do you want to be strategic? <laughs> and the answer is almost always I want to be strategic. Um, I think having worked with young people my whole, my whole career, I think I've seen ageism um, at both ends of the spectrum. Um, I think now we're, we're to the point as a larger community that there actually are LGBTQ out seniors. So I'll be curious, you know, as certainly as I age, what that will mean for the community, um, especially when so many facets of the queer community are focused on youth and youthfulness. Um, what does it mean to be an aging queer? Um, I guess I'll find out. I hope I hope I live long enough to find out. That's the goal. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. You seem um, great. Yeah, so I don't know if I answered the question, but certainly the, the idea of intersectionality is, is something I think about frequently because my experience of coming out is really literally just limited to my experience. Um, and I look at you know, the current generation of queerlings coming out and, um, you know, I'll, I'll run into someone and I'll say, oh, you know, whatever, the, uh, the issue of identity will come up and they'll be like, oh, I'm a gray, ace, pan, trans, <laughs> but, and I'm like, they give me a whole thing. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means, but that's awesome. Why don't you tell me? Like, I don't, I, you know, I have to go, I feel old and I'm like, where's my Google? Where's the Google? I need the Google. I don't know what they just said to me. <laughs> um, and I think it's fabulously exciting that the current generation is like, screw you, screw your binary, screw your boxes. 
Um, I want continuums on every dimension and I want to slip slide when and where I feel like it. And I'm like, go on with the bad self. Yeah, it's um, great to see. It's honestly good for the culture. Right? Yeah, it's good for right? the culture. People dress better, especially gay people. You know, it's very, it's, it's obvious. And it's great to see, you know, all sorts of, you know, fluidity and I enjoy it. And going out, it's just, you know, gives the environment yeah. just like a little bit more of a, fire to it you know yeah it's 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 cool and wild mm -hmm. so so yeah but thanks for telling me about that um let's see i mean i've been just loosely going by these questions you know because a lot of these oh. questions we cover you know and like then i'll go on <laughs> and then we'll have covered it already so i mean i guess i'll move on towards the end um so in what places did you feel the most accepted and who were you around? Um, I think that depends on like when in my life I'm reflecting on. Um, Cause that would change at different places at different times. Um, I mean, yeah, I think, yeah, sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. That's okay. I think, like, I'm I'm one of those people where, like, I like, I think my perception of myself is, like, I feel at home in my own skin. And so part of my comfort level is not dependent on, <laughs> on spaces. Like, I'm going to be me. You're going to be you. You don't like me. That's okay. Um... I think the places and spaces where I felt most comfortable uh, in my early years were the clubs and the bars. You know, when I was 18, 19 years old, um, those were the gathering spaces, right? That's what we had were the, were the gay clubs and where, you know, we were free and we dressed how we wanted to dress and we danced and we kissed and we fought and then we made up again and um, we learned to do drag together. And like, I joke around, like I'm old enough. Do you know who like Pandora box and Darian Lake are? They're like some of the early RuPaul drag race. I've heard stars. of Pandora box actually. Now that yeah. So first. like Dora and Darian and I, like we all came out together actually in the same city at the same time. Wow. And I remember when, and Dora and Darian were first like starting like we were all like 19 20 years old together we were all like coming out together at the same time and it was it was exciting um when I moved to San Francisco <clears throat> and I was like 22 23 um I found myself in a Catholic LGBT faith community called Dignity which there's still dig there's dignity still exists. It's a community of queer Catholics. I've never heard and of I was it. Still, That's interesting. Yeah, I was still religious and I found myself in a dignity community and um, there was a number of like lesbian feminists who were all like taking care of the gay guys who were dying. And the the group that seemed to like adopt me was this group of gay Catholic Leathermen, <laughs> um, 
so they, you know, would take me out. They knew I was young and poor and like these leather guys would take me out to dinner and put me on the back of their float in San Francisco pride parade. And, um, you know, they're in their chaps and their leather vests. And I'm like, ah, I'm like tagging along behind, <laughs> you know? Um, so, and they were just like, who the fuck is this kid? Like, just, okay, just, come on, come on, come on. You know, like I, I was just a little hungry puppy dog, man, you know? And, uh, and over the years it's, it, yeah, it's, I think, you know, people find, you find your people and I, and, uh, I, I still find, I still find myself at home in the, in the leather community is still where I spend most of my time. That's so great. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just hearing you say that reminds me of Berlin. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. We'll move on to, um, let's see. To you, what's the importance of queer people having a home and a chosen family and anything else, et cetera, that comes with, you know, heteronormative, you know, kind of heteronormativity and, you know, what's the classic home and, you know, what's the importance of queer people being able to, you know, be able to do as they please, you know, with when it comes to marrying yeah. and having a family? Well, I think the importance of chosen family is the difference between life and death for a lot of us, right? Uh, for many queer people, even now, um, chosen family is more predictable, more reliable, more stable, more steady um, than families of origin. You know, I live, I've been living now in Toronto for quite a while, and I work with a lot of young people who are um, refugees, immigrant, newcomer, youth. Um, and, you know, finding queer community in a place sometimes where people are literally, it's your safety at stake. Um, you know, some things haven't changed. Back in my early youth worker days, there were sometimes kids I had to coach on how to run away from home because it was unsafe and violent. And that's not always different right now. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I've sometimes explained to people, you know, even there are kids now who are growing up in queer families, right? There's people being born to queer, in, in queer families. Um, but a lot of us still aren't. And when you come out, even in the most supportive of straight families, there's still going to be this part of your life and your experience that they'll never, they'll never really truly be able to grasp. Um, you know, so that's kind of the heart, the heart part of things. Um, and, you know, from the more activist side of me, I'm like, I'm all down for chosen families that dismantle any kind of family structure that will dismantle the like white supremacist, androcentric, patriarchal, you know, <laughs> hegemonic exactly. paradigms that we're all trapped in. I'm all for that. I'm all for like subversion. Um, so the fact that I get chosen family that I can love um, and that loves me in the way and sees me in the way I need to be seen um 
is is good for me and it's very powerful it's very powerful to get to name who you are in a family structure you know the family you're born into oh you're the second child or the, you're the first grandchild or you're the uncle or you're you know you but when you get into a family of choice you get to be you get to name who you are on your terms to some people, to a lot of people, especially in Toronto, to a lot of people, I'm Uncle Patty. Um, to a couple of people, I'm Dad. Um, to someone I met when she was 17 at Syracuse University, I'm still her mom. Um, and to one person, I'm Mommy. And to someone else, I'm Daddy. And it's so like, yeah, I can be all that and more. That's that's fantastic no. to hear that you've taken on those Subvert. roles. Yeah. Subvert. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I guess we're getting on to the last, you know, maybe three questions. So okay. you know, I don't want to take out too much of your time. I'm sure you're very busy. Um, um, I'm good for a little bit yet. Okay. All right. So, what are some things that bring you joy? I mean, we've already covered that the queer <laughs> things bring you much joy, but yeah. <laughs> But yeah, um, I think that's that's changed, you know, and I think that's just changed by a factor of my age. You know, what used to bring me joy was like going out to the club to a drag show and having a wild time. Now, like um, the things that bring me joy are, you know, much simpler, more quiet. Uh, stability brings me happiness. Like I have a chosen family that is, um, they are my ride or dies and we've seen each other through some shit and then some, and, uh, that stability brings me a lot of joy and comfort. Well, thank you for that. And what are you grateful or who are you grateful for and are there any words you'd like to share with anyone or anything you'd like anyone to hear oh my gosh i'm grateful for so many people along the way um you know i'm grateful for those early um from like kind of again because we're talking more through queer lenses like I'm really grateful for the the early lesbian feminists and gay activists who let me tag along and you know taught me the things and um didn't you know didn't necessarily shield me but also shepherded me um I'm grateful to every kid I've ever worked with, um, right up until the ones I'm working with right now, um, and the 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 amazing lessons they've taught me um, about life. I'm definitely grateful for every kid um, and family that's allowed me to walk beside them, and um, and I feel I feel super blessed. Um, Man, there's probably way too many, way too many people to be grateful for. Um, 
because I don't think I don't think we meet anybody by accident. Um, but it is a choice as to whether we allow ourselves to be moved or whether we choose to be immovable. So, well, yeah. Well put. Very well put. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's the, that was great. Thank you so much. Um, so is there anything else you'd like to add about your overall experience as a queer person in Syracuse? Or is there any wisdom you want to bestow or... Any words you'd like to say for people to remember once they finish this? Um, I don't know. I think the process of just having this conversation with you makes me think of, um, you know, I'm aware that Syracuse University is, in, is on indigenous lands. And it makes me um, reflect on, you know, one of the indigenous worldviews, I mean, the best I understand as a white person, <laughs> um, and I say what I'm about to say with a great deal of cultural humility, because there's a great chance I could... No, I'm sure. Anything you say, I, I know this. comes from a good heart. So just... Um, you know, I think about in many indigenous communities when um, decisions are made or work is being done, that there is this idea of think seven generations in the past and think seven generations in the future. Um, and so that would be given where Syracuse sits, uh, you know, on Haudenosaunee territory is for the queer community uh, to maybe think through those sets of lenses that as we sit here in 2022 with all that's going on in the world, um, what would it mean to think seven queer generations past and seven queer generations in the future and then act accordingly in the moment and then just do the next right thing by thinking seven queer generations to the past, seven queer generations in the future, uh, and then we'll be okay. Very <laughs> well put. Very well put. I'll, I'll try and remember to think that way too. Okay, well, I'm going to end the recording here. Okay, super.